we are live from the Empire of Lies, oasis of free speech and open debate in the wasteland that is the Biden administration. I'm investigative journalist Lee Strahan, and this is Backstory. How you doing, Rod? Doing well, he can't complain about myself. I'm good. So, you put together another great show for us today. Two of our good friends are on. In the first hour, we're joined by the great Mark Frost. Oh, Mark Sloboda. Oh, Mark Sloboda, forgive me, I was close. I, I got the Mark part right, so I was pretty far. But, because one's in America and one's in Moscow. But we were joined by Mark Sloboda talking about what's going on in the headlines about NATO and Russia and Ukraine. And I gotta say, mostly it's all BS. Have you gotten that impression, Rod? Yeah, yesterday after the show video, uh, after the show, we uh, saw a video of the supposed shopping mall that got hit, and uh, it's not a shopping mall <laughs> in the video that got hit. So, like you said, it, it is all BS. Yes, and in an age where everybody else is talking about Cassidy, what's her name? You know, the chick who, she should not have been allowed to testify to what she testified to. Do you think, Rod, she testified to something she did not see, but she heard happened, that the people are denying happened. You saw that, that Secret Service agents are going to appear, but it will be too late. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's already out there and it's already traveled. It's already traveled through the cycle around the world. There are some people who swear, and they will die thinking, when they pass away decades from now, thinking Donald Trump grabbed a steering wheel from a Secret Service agent and demanded to be taken to Capitol. And probably, let's make the story better. Let's not stop there. Then Trump reached into his jacket and pulled out a 357 Magnum handgun, Judy Harris style, and aimed it at the Secret Service station and said, to the Capitol right now, I've got to take out Pence. Now, I'm not saying that happened. I'm saying I heard it happened. Right, Rod? That story you just said right now is more plausible than this Cassidy Hutchinson. I mean, if, even if you watch her uh, fake testimony, you can see, like, this her she's trying to practice this and you know she puts her own arm on her on her uh, left arm to make it seem like you know this is how it happened when this is a person who supposedly I mean if this thing supposedly happened she wasn't even there but you know it's all fake it's just it's just to, to uh, distract us now do I have it right because I got the first guess wrong I said Mark Frost but I meant Mark Sabota do I have it right that's Ted Rawl or is this some other Ted <laughs> So, no, it is Ted Rawl. Mark, Mark Frost wasn't supposed to come on, but he had a last-minute thing come up, so he had to cancel on us. Okay, so I was not uh, pulling at Brittany Griner. I'm, I was not high, because I don't have any weed up here in South Dakota anyway. But I was not delusional. It, we had a Mark substitution, right? You're saying it's Mark's vote now, but at one point I did see Mark Frost. That's, that's correct, Lee. Thank God, because I'm not, I'm not back on. And we have Ted Rawl in the second hour. 
And we're taking your phone calls. 202-521-1320. Let's get to the headlines. And give us a boom. Producer Rod from Philly. You're listening to the best show on the radio. Backstory. Now, I don't need to tell you. You know what the big headline now, currently, as we go live. What's the big headline now, Rod? You can say it. Um, honestly, I don't know, Lee. I was I was looking into other things, uh, so I don't know. What the, the big headline still I was seeing was still this this whole Cassidy Hutchinson well, thing. Well, let me give you a hint, and this is not a a suggestion; it's a hint, Rod. Sex me. Oh my God! No. I'm, I'm <laughs> Uh, yeah. Go ahead. You can continue. Well, Sex Me was a big hit for who? Do you remember? Mm, no, his, I can't. I don't, I don't have this. His other big hit around the same time was Bump and Grind. A bigger hit. Oh, oh R. Kelly. You're talking about R. Kelly. Talking about R. Right. Kelly. Indeed. And again, that was a good hint, but it sounded like a suggestion. No. R. Kelly has been sentenced. R. Kelly got 30 years. Ghislaine Maxwell got 20. Now, I'm going to say something politically incorrect. May I, Rod? Please. And I don't think this will get us kicked off the radio. But I got to say, the girls who were with R. Kelly, do you think they were more enthusiastic and happier to be sexually abused by R. Kelly rather than giving a tug to Jeff Epstein. Oh, yeah, Is that fair to a, say? Uh, yeah, Lifetime. I think it was Lifetime put up a whole uh, Surviving R. Kelly series. Uh, my lady watched it, you know, and she, so she, we talked about little excerpts about it. And, uh, yeah, a lot of these women were actually uh, very thrilled to live with him and, and be under his, uh, his conquest. R. Kelly had a number of big hits, huge hits, produced Michael Jackson. But you could tell the problems with R. Kelly started. Remember when in the back old school, which I'll talk about why I'm nostalgic for the 90s in a second. But uh, R. Kelly, when he remember when he married Aaliyah in the early 90s? Yeah, and that's still uh, in this in that whole series. It was talked about, but nobody brings up the fact how the, you know who who signed off that. I think it was in Michigan. So who in the state of Michigan signed off on a? Uh, I think she was fifteen at the time. I think it was Chicago, actually. But I could be wrong. But she, when he when he married Aaliyah, she was fifteen years old. Am I missing something here, Rod? Fifteen. Yeah, fifteen. That's right. And. Then she put out an album, and do you remember the name of her first album after her marriage? Yeah, I'm not. I don't know it off the top of my head, Lee. No. Age ain't nothing but a number. Oh, okay. Yeah, but based on yeah, there you go. You're right. You're right. <laughs> I wonder if R. Kelly's regretting that album title now. Age ain't nothing but a number. Well. The number is now 30, are 30 years in prison. And so, yeah, I, I bet I, I wouldn't be surprised if the women were more enthusiastic, which doesn't make it legal, 
But who do you think would be enthusiastic if there was not money involved about giving a massage with happy ending to Jeff Epstein? Who would be into that? You said if there's no money involved? No, I don't no, know. no money. No for money, free. no. I don't. I don't know who would be willing to uh, give Jeff Epstein a massage. And I would say, if you throw in, hey, we'll make it more appealing to you. You get a three, three, free threesome with an older British socialite. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't necessarily help. Yeah, and no, so, that's not a, that, that's not very appealingly. And so I, I think in, in cosmically, the fact that Ghislaine Maxwell got 20 years and R. Kelly got 30 years, I feel like cosmically that is unfair. And that's a politically incorrect statement. And I realize that. And I accept the consequences, Rod. But do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I did see that uh, alert come across my phone. But I mean, this, you know. What did people expect? I mean, R. Kelly, a guy who can't even read, um, you know what I mean? Uh, what, he was already set up from go with this whole case, and then they had a whole, a whole series surviving R. Kelly. I mean, he was going to get the maximum sentence, you know what I mean? Now, the other headline today, and I got to say, R. Kelly sensing is a harbinger that Ukraine will win the military conflict with Russia as much as I'm not done with the sentence, Rod, hear me out as much as Sweden and Finland entering NATO means that Ukraine will win. You see what I did there? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sweden and Ukraine are, they did the, you know, press release officially at the NATO summit where Wyatt Reed is in Madrid covering. Sweden and Finland, tell me, Rod, how that's equaling you a Ukrainian victory in the military battle against Russia. Um, unless we're talking about photo ops where the, you know, Sweden and Finland are going to be able to take uh, pictures with their NATO members, other NATO other NATO members, I don't see how this helps Ukraine at all, and um, I don't. And this is just an agitation to Russia, and I don't understand why these countries want to keep. Uh, we're not even poking the bear anymore. Now you're trying to stab at it. This is just going to end up. Uh, the blowback's going to be too much for them to handle. It will help them just as much as the R. Kelly sentencing. Agreed. R. Kelly being sentenced to thirty years affects Ukraine. It probably affects Zelensky more because he, I have no doubt Zelensky would have done a follow-up if R. Kelly had gone off, so to speak, had gotten no sentence, he would have been on the next plane to Ukraine to do a photo-op with Zelensky. But that has nothing to do. Ukraine has lost militarily. Every day it's clear that Russia is winning. They're continuing to make advances in Donbass. And we'll talk to Mark Savota about that in a second. 
because he's on at the 50-minute point, right, Rod? Correct. Okay, so, so let's take a break now because I hear he's ready and talk to Mark Zaboda about the Ukrainian chances of pulling out a military victory now that Sweden and Finland are in NATO. Is this a turning point? Is this writing on the wall? Are the walls closing in? Rachel Madden might say. Let's take a short break, Rod. And when we return, we will be joined by none other than the great Mark Sloboda, straight out of Moscow on the Baxter. on 105.5 FM and AM 1390. And I have a quick joke before I bring on Mark Sabota, Rod. And get ready, because I'm going to need you to explain this joke to people who don't know sports at all. Okay? Because you're the only one here, I think, follows sports at all. And hopefully this will make sense. Get on. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Lee. So, we have a breaking headline. The Biden administration has announced to help Ukraine. They're betting a billion dollars on the Tampa Bay Lightning to win the Stanley Cup. That's a joke. <laughs> okay, Next there you one. go. Explain that one, Rod. Well, the Tampa Bay Lightning didn't win. It's right. Colorado Avalanche won the world of the uh, Stanley Cup. Right, a couple of days ago. And the hockey reference is not for nothing. I will bring up hockey again soon. In relation to Vladimir Putin, but we're joined right now by geopolitical analysts and all-around smart guy, straight out of Moscow, Russia, Mark Soboda. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Welcome. Lee, thanks for having me on. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the backstory. It's not only that; it's always fun to talk to you. It's fun, and we learn something every time. Mark, how you doing? Likewise, because I know nothing about the Stanley Cup, so I just learned something. Well, the joke was that the the Tampa Bay Lightning lost a couple of days ago. So, I, Tampa Bay has was, a hockey team, seriously? Yes, and it's amazing they have ice. I know. I think it's morally wrong. But Joe Biden and, and NATO at the NATO summit, these people bragging about Sweden and Finland joining NATO. First off, will Sweden and Finland joining NATO have any effect whatsoever, possibly, on the Ukrainian conflict with Russia? Possibly. Um, um, it makes nice talking points in the info war, I guess. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> because they, they would say, well, now Sweden's and Finland is on their side. But, but it has no effect at all. Oh, the mighty, and, the mighty Finnish military is what going to yes. intervene in Ukraine? And, I, I, <laughs> and right now, anything happening with NATO 
Russia's effectively achieved, I mean, it's not over, over. So, but Russia's ahead by a mile in the military conflict. They've achieved many more of their goals and all the momentum is with Russia. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly the the momentum, the you know the 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 logic of logistics of industrial warfare of the conflict that's going on. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole thing about Finland, Norway, it is it is symbolic. It is political. It is NATO saying, no matter what you do in Ukraine, no matter what you say, we are going to keep expanding NATO and surrounding you. And the reality is, as Finland and, and Sweden have been de facto members of NATO for years, they have all NATO standard equipment, they do all their training with NATO, they do regular war exercises with NATO. This is just declaring the obvious and getting nuclear weapons pointed at themselves officially. <laughs> I, I'm no, not I sure it I... makes anyone in Finland and Sweden more, more safe. It, it certainly doesn't. But, you know, hey, if, if yeah, that's what they want, then from... give it to them. Now, the other day, Vladimir Putin said in 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 an interview, he said uh, he was asked whether he wants to engage in negotiations with Ukraine, and essentially he said, and I speak Russian, but the translation that I read seems to be he said, "I'd rather play ice hockey," and that struck me as funny. Because he's basically saying, why would I possibly want to negotiate with Ukraine? And is there any reason now Russia would possibly want to negotiate with Ukraine, Mark? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, the Russian government was very clear about that just in the last 24 hours. They said this can all end if the U.S.-backed Kiev regime surrenders. You know, if they're ready for that in five hours, 24 hours. A few months, a few years, whatever it takes. That that is when they will re-enter negotiations, and that would be good for uh, people in general. But it's not like Russia's, you know, uh, in a position where they're being forced to accept Ukraine surrender, right? Ukraine shows no sign of their willingness to surrender, do they? Uh, no, 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 not at all. Not at all. And I, I don't think that they ever will. I think that we will see. Um, I think that we will see Volodymyr Zelensky uh, in exile, uh, taking up an apartment together with Juan Guaido and Svetlana Tihanovskaya, and they can all pretend that they're presidents of countries together uh, somewhere in Brooklyn, maybe. Yes. And they can go to many film awards and music shows. That's go. fun for them. Now, that, Mark, that's, that's the only you, only place where there are presidents of of the countries that they're the claiming. The current story here in the propaganda war is that Russia struck a shopping mall. That's the story. And originally, Zelensky said it was a shopping mall full of thousands of children, thousands <laughs> of children, packed in a shopping mall. But now, even the West death toll, and again, any death toll is sad, but they say about 30 to 50. That does not sound like if you struck a full missile hit 
on a mall packed with thousands of children at the Ukrainian equivalent of Chuck E. Cheese, I guess. Uh, yeah. 30, yeah, actually, the, the last less. I heard was 18, 18. You got 30. The last I saw is 18, but it, possibly. Yes. It's one of those cases where the death toll keeps dropping. So first off, is is this a story in Russia? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, particularly the way that, you know, the uh, the Kiev regime in the West are trying to spin this. If you'll remember, two months ago, there was a similar story. Uh, oh, Russia bombed the shopping mall in Kiev. And then, oops, uh, Kiev regime fighters posted pictures of Kiev regime military equipment being stored in a no longer in that no longer operational shopping mall. Uh, and this is a very similar situation. Uh, this occurred in uh, the city of uh, Kremenchok in um, Poltava, the Poltava region. Um, and in the center of that city is a heavy machinery industrial plant, Kredmash. Um, and that plant has been used since 2014 to repair Kiev regime tanks uh, during its war on the Donbass. Um, and uh, recently, it has, at, at least recently, it has been storing Western weapons uh, that have been uh, you know, smuggled in across the border and uh, shipped across the country, uh, you know, where they will then be used uh, in the conflict in, in Donbass or would have been used. And right next to it, right outside the borders on one side of, of the plant, is a shopping mall, the uh, Amstor uh, shopping mall. Now, all indications are that this shopping mall was shut down in March. CCTV footage posted by Kiev before the, the, the uh, strikes uh, showed that an empty parking lot with a bunch of people in military uniforms walking around, right? That was if, if there was anyone in that shopping mall, that's the only one who was there. Now, there were two strikes that hit. One of them definitely hit the machinery factory uh, that was being used to store weapons and, and repair tanks, and that, that's not in question. Uh, the other one is there was a second missile hit. Did it hit the edge of the plant and the resulting detonation of Western stockpiles then resulted in a fire? Um, or did the um, second missile hit the plant, which is the, the Kiev regime's story. I mean, hit the um, sorry, hit the shopping mall. But regardless, it was no longer a shopping mall. It is almost certain that that mall was used also, uh, probably to store uh, uh, weapons uh, and possibly um, uh, m military equipment that was going to be repaired or had been repaired and was awaiting redistribution in this. Red mash heavy factory, and that's why, despite the story of oh a thousand uh, you know civilian shoppers and so on, you see reports of eighteen people, men in military uniform, actually being the dead. And and the way that the Western media has completely uncritically just reported this, knowing that the Kiev regime has pulled the same stuff before, knowing they post themselves videos all the time of them. Um, having military positions in schools, in hospitals, in theaters, in shopping centers. There was a, a Western media story uh, that uh, focused 
on a territorial defense battalion, i.e., you know, uh, conscripts that um, had their headquarters in a shopping center in Kiev, not not just a few weeks ago. And there's no criticality of this whatsoever. And if you have military equipment or troops in a conflict and you are putting them, let's say that there were, let's, let's theorize that the shopping center was an operating shopping center and you're storing weapons and repairing military vehicles in an industrial plant right next door, that's a war crime, right? Uh, you may not like that, but that is the reality. You have a requirement to move your military, your military equipment away from civilians. If that mall was not closed down, then that is a war crime by the Kiev regime against their own people because they are then using them as human shields or at the very least putting them in danger when a legitimate military target is struck. And a lot of people say that's not fair. I would agree with you. I mean, it's almost impossible to fight a war without violating the, the Geneva Conventions, the, the laws of war. And, and I, I might even agree that they should be written, rewritten, but that's the way they're written. And it does make it practically impossible to defend a city, yes, unless you evacuate all the people from it. Even if you do, then you can't complain when residential – and you take up firing positions, then you certainly can't complain when uh, uh, residential buildings and hospitals and theaters are hit. I mean you might remember uh, you know, people who have more than a 15-minute memory when U.S. helicopters – we're conducting a several hour gun battle strafing a hospital in Afghanistan because there was a few rebels, uh, uh, Afghani rebels holding up in the building. Um, you know, no one, you know, uh, the U.S. doesn't allow anyone to accuse them of war crimes. When the International Criminal Court uh, tried to open cases against the United States a few years ago, the uh, U.S. not only sanctioned the court, but sanctioned the judges and made threats against their families until they revoked the investigation. That's the way the U.S. does business. You know, war, war crimes accusations I, for you, and you know, you can't judge us. And I think throughout this conflict, one pattern has emerged very clearly: the U.S. blatantly lies and makes up stuff. Stuff that's complete fantasy. And Russia, rather than try to dissuade the world that what the U.S. is saying is fantasy, more or less ignores it. They will make statements about it not being true, but they don't spend a lot of time in the PR game. Yeah. And yeah, no, I mean, Russia. It's, it's, I, yeah, go the, ahead, the info war. The info war is being conducted in English, right, yeah. in the field of journalism and the social media space, on you know social media platforms that are completely in bed with the U.S. government. You know, Twitter, uh, uh, Facebook, uh, and, and you know, and, and other you know, YouTube, even uh, Google, right? You know, these are, these are the platforms of the information war online, and. They are, you know, controlled by companies that are, you know, in complete synergy, revolving door with the U.S. government. So it's no surprise they're winning the information war. It would be 
it's pointless for Russia to engage in anything but a rear guard info war action where they simply try to say as much of their version. Uh, and I don't want to say it's always the truth, right? Because I mean, no government is 100 percent honest and it would be silly to claim otherwise. But I find during this conflict, the the level of truth between what the Russian government is saying and what this regime in Kiev is saying with its ghost of Kiev and its Snake Island hoax and its bombing of Baba Yar and its bombing of shopping malls and so on is is a degree, uh, a factorial degree of, of difference between the two of them. Um, and I think that most serious people who aren't compromised by their positions in the Western media um, and uh, in Western uh, institutions and think tanks where there is an incredible degree of self-censorship and self-delusion going on, you know, independent Western observers are saying, hey, uh, you know, actually, this regime's not so democratic. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty repressive, actually. It's, it's actually a really repressive tyranny with state-armed and funded neo-Nazi death school, but it's been killing its own people for eight years, and it's lying through its teeth all the time. Right. Uh, and even if you don't like Vladimir Putin and, uh, you know, you you have to uh, th these people have to admit these things if there is a degree of honesty. And certainly the 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 nature and shape of the conflict, the the what the one thing that this continual denial of the course of this conflict. Right, i.e., that the Kiev regime is losing badly and that they're losing is inevitable, um, is that more Ukrainians will die. Right, lots more Ukrainians. Some more Russians will die. Uh, some more Western non boots on the ground CIA and special forces, uh, NATO commandos, which they have recently admitted to that are all over Ukraine directing attacks with. Uh, special apps and and uh, directing weapons flows and so on. Some more of them will die too. But here's the thing. The U.S. wants Ukrainians to die in this conflict. They want as many to die as possible. How can you say that's true, right? I mean, I, how can that possibly be true? Yeah, sure. They would like to weaken Russia's military as, as uh, the U.S. Secretary of Defense was quite uh, – uh, clear about right, which which means dead Russians. Sure, they they want that. That's going to happen to some degree. But here's the thing: Ukraine is a divided, largely on east-west lines between and a national identity concept between a West Ukraine that leads leans either to the West or ultra-nationalist, Banderite fascist, and an East that leans towards Russia, and still does quite obviously in this conflict. There are tens of thousands of Ukrainians fighting on the Russian side, right? East Ukrainians, uh, but uh, the Ukraine is. The Kiev regime is fighting with a conscript, uh, conscripted military, forced conscription. No males between the age of 16 and 60 are allowed to leave the country. They all need to register for the mobilization, i.e. the draft, and they're being called up in waves, right? Five waves. They're on the third one now. And every one of these Ukrainian territorial defense, which are basically civilians with a NATO weapon shoved into their arms, sent into the artillery meat grinder on the Eastern Front in the Donbass, with no weapons really capable of fighting back and no training whatsoever, they're, they're going to die. They're, they're dying in large numbers where they're not able to surrender. 
Uh, and every one of them that dies, wh whatever their family thought of the regime in Kiev and whatever they thought of Russia before that, they then hate Russia forever because a family member was taken from them, right? And that is the calculus that Russia will be forced to kill so many Ukrainians that there is no hope of that fraternal bond between East, at, at least East Ukraine and, you know, and Russia uh, ever being, you know, functional again. So that Russia may win the conflict, which in their, you know, honest moments they may admit to, but they they will not be able to, uh, you know, uh, repair relations with whatever comes out the other side of this conflict. That is the intention of DC. It is a cynical way of thinking. It is a cold geopolitical way of thinking. But you know, that's that's the way they think when they're planning these. And is there going to be blowback from it? By, by what I mean by that is, is it possible a lot of the Ukrainians will end up blaming the U.S. and not sure. Russia? Will end up looking at the situation and saying, we were forced in this situation by the U.S. and end up being mad at Zelensky. Do you think that's just as likely? Sure, I mean, it, it is all a matter of how it turns out, right? The U.S. bombed Serbia and Iraq and Libya and, you know, and, and so forth uh, and Afghanistan, and they killed lots of people in these countries. But there were still people in those countries that collaborated with the United States, right? Um uh, and, and some of them large numbers, and and sometimes it was political reasons, sometimes it was you know ethno-cultural religions, a divided country, and so on. So it could still play out that way. I, I don't think that West Ukraine is suddenly going to decide that hey, Russia is okay, right? I mean, it's it's written into their social cultural DNA, their national identity conception of what it means to be Ukrainian. But the Russian government still thinks it has a chance to win back the hearts and minds of the majority of East Ukrainians, uh, who even those on, in currently government controlled area. And, and you know, that's, that's where the, the betting is right now. As much as there is a war going on on the battlefield and there is an economic war being waged. There is also a war for the hearts and minds of Ukrainians on both sides of the conflict zone, uh, zone going on. And, and did I see, I believe in some parts of Ukraine, I think it's Kherson, they're preparing for a referendum where people will be able to vote about whether they want to basically rejoin Russia. Have you heard anything about yeah, that? Yeah, sure. Mark? I mean, th that has been talked about for a long time. It does seem still to be that's what's going to happen. That is what the uh, the Kherson officials say. Um, the Russian government has been uh, a little less forthcoming on that, a little more vague. But the, the people in charge of Kherson right now, these are Kherson politicians, right? The the, the guy who uh, is now running Kherson, he used to be the mayor of Kherson city, and he was a representative of uh, the Kherson um, uh, region in the Ukrainian Rada up until the overthrow of the government in 2014. These are the politically repressed parties that, you know, the politicians of East Ukraine 
that were basically lustrated and pogromed out when the U.S.-backed putsch seized power that are now in charge of these regions. I, this isn't you know, like Russian uh, administrators being pointed over Kherson. These are East Ukrainian people from that region that were politicians that had been repressed since the overthrow of the government in 2014 you know, reestablishing and making decisions, uh, you know, uh, with and, and for their, their own people there. Um, and, uh, I, I think there is every possibility that Harrison will hold a referendum and that the, ma- the majority of people, probably not as many as in Crimea, simply because of the population, but I think you'll probably see, uh, some 60% at least that after the results of everything will say, you know, now that we've got a choice on this, you know, this, this regime over here is a wreck and, and they've got these banderites that, that hate us and we hate them. Yeah. We'd, we'd probably be better off with Russia. It seems to me the longer this conflict goes on, the smaller Ukraine oh, yeah. gets. Yeah. And I'm reminded of the famous Monty Python film, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where King Arthur met a knight, and he gets in a sword fight with him and chops off his, the knight's arm. And the arm's laying in the ground. And the, the knight says, it's only a flesh wound. And so King Arthur has to keep fighting with him. And he lops off another arm and then his leg and his other leg. And he's still screaming, you know, it's only a flesh wound. Keep fighting. Yep. I, I know the scene well. He's gotten smaller and yeah, smaller. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Russian government yes. was quite clear about this, right, for the last several years. With the two Minsk Accords that the Kiev regime agreed to was solidified in international law by the Security Council, and then they refused to implement, and then they have since admitted, and Angela Merkel has admitted, that no one, they never uh, uh, intended to fulfill the terms of this political reconciliation agreement. They were just using it to buy time to rebuild the Kiev regime military. Well, that, that military is destroyed, right? So, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm not so sure that was a big accomplishment there for them. It's going to cost a lot of lives uh, in destruction in the process. Um, but the Russian government was quite clear that if this comes to a conflict, if you refuse the political reconciliation, right, to reconcile the events of 2014 with the east of your own country, then Ukraine as a state, as it exists territorially today, is going to come to an end, i.e. you are destroying your own country, right? Um, And if you keep going down there, this is where it's going to end. And just recently, Medvedev pointed out, you know, all these talks about now, oh, EU candidate status, which means nothing. Turkey's had EU candidate status since 1999. How's that worked out for them, right? Um, you know, but that in two years, there may not be a Kiev, certainly not anywhere near its original uh, borders, a, a regime, uh, you know, that you can call Ukraine. I mean, I've always preferred to refer to the regime that came out of 2014 as Banderistan, formerly known as Ukraine. Um, But this conflict ends with the partition or even the balkanization of Ukraine, right? Once once this delicate internal and external balance between East and West, inside and outside of the country was was broken in 2014 with the overthrow of the government, it's like Humpty Dumpty fa- falling off the wall, 
you, you can't put all the pieces back together again. The only question is, where are those partition or balkanization lines going to be? And the longer this is dragged out by Kiev and by the West pumping them full of weapons and arms, it's not going to change the inevitable. It is only going to increase or the the shall we say the wounds the the, the appendages of the night that are cut off or you know how or, or lessen how much of ukraine as it exists today ruled by kiev is left coming out the other side now do you think that and of course you don't know but do you think that is likely that the next battlefield when they move on from donbass is going to be over odessa and how does that relate to Snake Island? Snake Island, which you mentioned already, seems to be a current obsession of Zelensky's. Have you yeah, heard that? Yeah, I mean, this it, is, again, it, it has no real strategic value. It's simply they believe that a minimum cost, they can't recover Snake Island, right? But they think that they can deny it operationally to Russian Navy. Right. If they get enough Western uh, uh, U.S. and British uh, anti-ship missiles, harpoons and so forth, so that Russia can't be there. Right. Because they were just being pummeled because Snake Island is a very small place and it's very close to the coastline there. It's actually within long range artillery range. Um, and it, Russia doesn't actually need that island to, to continue doing what it's doing. It can fire its cruise missiles at Kiev from the Caspian Sea, right? <laughs> the, you know, the, the, the other side of the Caucasus, as they regularly do. Uh, you know, the Black Sea fleet can, can still, uh, you know, uh, control the Black Sea just at a further removed from the Kiev regime coast. But again, the regime in Kiev keeps, seems to be doing things for symbolic or PR value that are extremely expensive for it that don't make a lot of strategic sense because it's fighting much more of an information war because it can't win the war on the battlefield uh, at all. I think that before Odessa, Russia will probably go for Kharkov. They've already, they're already uh, in the suburbs of Kharkov right now. Um, and, uh, you know, there's every indication Kharkov is Russia's, I'm sorry, Ukraine's second largest city. It, it may be part of Russia again, uh, you know, at some point if this continues on the way it's going without some signal of surrender from Kiev. Um, but I don't think Russia wants to storm the city, a city of that size. Um, that would be that the loss of life would be uh, egregious, uh, but it, it may effectively put the city under siege. Um, uh, of one form or another. Uh, I Simply, geography tells me that it will be Kharkov before Odessa, but when the West keeps sh shipping anti-ship missiles systems to the regime in Kiev, they are forcing the Kremlin to take Odessa, you know, the whole southwest coast there of Ukraine, leaving Kiev with a landlocked rump country. Right. And I, for that, I'm glad because I, there's a lot of Russians who say that this conflict will not really be over, that it is not acceptable until Russia frees all of East Ukraine, meaning Odessa, Kharkov, Dnieper, Petovsk, everything up to the Dnieper uh, from the regime in Kiev. And that anything less, you know, is not not worth what what has 
happened so far. And um, that is, you know, it is a popular sentiment in the country. And, you know, Putin is actually, despite the portrayals, fairly cautious. And he might be tempted to liberate just the Donbass and they already have the Kherson and, and call it a day, right, and begin negotiations. But when the West keeps pushing anti-ship missiles into uh, Odessa in order to protect the Black Sea fleet, they're forcing the Kremlin to be more expansive, to make sure that they have to take Odessa. And again, I have my wife is uh, from Crimea and we have family. She's got extended family all over East Ukraine, including in Odessa, uh, Donbass and Kharkov, all over East Ukraine. And they hate the regime in Kiev, they, the, the people that overthrew the government that they had elected and uh, they want it gone. Um, whether you know that means uh, you know regime change in Kiev or some independent uh, statelet um, or balkanized statelet or rejoining Russia, they 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 want out from under that U.S.-backed regime in Kiev. Now, what's the last thing that's going on in Kaliningrad? What seemed like it happened was the EU said to Lithuania, "You need to stop." shipments going to Kaliningrad, and once Lithuania started to do that and Russia pushed back on it, then Lithuania kind of said, well, this wasn't our fault. This is the EU's doing. So EU saw that that situation was escalating, and then EU tried to back out of it. But now it seems like Lithuania wants to keep this I'll, for lack of a better term, pissing match with Russia going. Does that seem to you what's going on? Like Lithuania won't Yeah, my impression drop? is that it, it worked out a little different, right? Kaliningrad is a Russian exclave, territorially separated, that it gained as a result of World War II. It used to be known as, as Konigsberg, right? Before that, it was part of Prussia uh, and, and so forth. Um, it is, there are treaties between Russia and Lithuania and between Russia and NATO. Uh, and there's also rules, uh, you know, under international law, the World Trade Organization, that guarantee free transit of goods from one side of Russia to the other, uh, you know, through trains and, and, and so forth in Lithuania. And Lithuania is trying to apply these unilateral sanctions uh, that the EU and the US have declared in their economic war against Russia and applying them to goods that are moving from one part of Russia to another through Lithuania. They're never intended for distribution, right, in Lithuania or anything like that. They're trying to blockade uh, uh, Kaliningrad. And what seems to be happening is not that this was initiated by the European Commission or the EU sanctions, but Lithuania did this almost certainly by prodding from the US and possibly the UK. And Lithuania has been kind of the yapping dog for the US already. They've been out in front of the whole uh, trying to force uh, uh, Taiwanese separatism uh, apart from China as well. And as a result of of de facto recognizing a Taiwanese embassy, um, they have uh, the uh, Chinese completely cut off economic trade with Lithuania. Way to go there. Their biggest, you know, ever, almost everyone's biggest trading partner. Um, and they're doing the same thing now. 
um, which is really, really stupid since they get most of their energy uh, either directly or through a middleman uh, from Russia. Um, and um, the EU Commission, when when this all came down, seemed to look at the issue and said, well, maybe this isn't such a good idea to escalate this way because technically a blockade is a causes dulling. I mean, i.e. a just cause for war. And we're not ready for that degree of escalation yet. So they said, hey, we're going to draft a law exempting you from applying these sanctions, uh, you know, to specifically uh, from uh, transit of goods from Russia to Kaliningrad. And Lithuania said, no, we will veto it if you try to. So there's this weird blame game. Lithuania tried to blame that. It was, oh, it's not us. It's just the EU sanctions. And the commission's like, uh-uh, uh-uh, we're, we're trying to exempt it. And it's a clown show. It's farcical going on right now. Um, and it, it speaks of a really inconceived foreign policy and uh, a very provocative um, disposition by Lithuania, by some forces probably in the U.S., um, that there is not a whole lot of unity here on a, on a directed foreign policy approach to Russia. And, and this is an example of the cracks showing. And more than anything else, I think the whole the whole situation is is farcical. Now, Mark, we always like to talk to you because we like to check our friend in Moscow to see how the economic sanctions are affecting you. It's brutal. And after G7's last seventh round of sanctions, Mark, I'm putting my foot down. You cannot sell me gold, Mark. Okay. I mean, that's all right. definite. I mean, there's plenty of other people in the world that want gold. Not that I have any gold to sell, but if I had gold and you wouldn't take it, I would be heartbroken that I would have to sell it to some Saudi or Indonesian instead. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, right. There'd be no shortage of people who buy yeah. your gold. Um, what? How much are you paying for gas at the pump right now, Lee? Well, I don't buy yeah. it personally, but it's close. It's it's close to five bucks. Yeah, we we pay less. I mean, I don't drive either. I love <laughs> the Russian, the Moscow public transportation system. But for those people that do drive, they pay less than half of that. So, how's how's that working out for you? Um, and I, I'm pretty sure inflation right. is, is worse for you than it is for us. Yeah, we can't buy McDonald's now. I mean, not named McDonald's. The, uh, you know, capitalists being capitalists. Uh, McDonald's has, has pulled a little sleight of hand. We're pulling out of Russia. And we've sold all of our stores and everything in them to a Russian company that has sprung up that will keep making McDonald's food with a different branding, but we've arranged a contract that says at any time in the next six years, we can re-enter and buy everything back. <laughs> so that's the way McDonald's is still keeping their market share in Russia. And Russians are still buying the same food just with different branding for those people that can actually stomach McDonald's. That's the kind of things that are going on. It's, it's all happening with a wink and a nod. And, um, uh, you know, there's inflation in Russia, but by everything I've seen, all the reports I've seen and what I've experienced, uh, I mean, it's not like there's any store runs or here. And the inflation is is worse in the U.S. and, and the EU than it is here, actually. And that's a, a result of idiotically trying to blame to to 
sanction and blockade the biggest global commodity supplier of oil, of gas, of wheat, of fertilizer, of several precious metals, of several chemicals used uh, to c conduct semiconductor chips. This, this, this war of capital versus commodities was extremely ill-conceived. Uh, and the commodities are winning and the blowback is hurting the U.S. and the EU taxpayers more than it's hurting ordinary Russians. And way to go, Joe Biden. And Mark, let me ask you a question I'm sure no one's asked you today. Can you buy tampons? Did you buy tampons lately? Um, I, I myself have not bought tampons. Honey, have you been able to buy tampons recently? Yeah, yeah, she says yes. So I don't think there's any tampon or baby okay. food shortage here. Have you heard about the tampon crisis in America? I, I have heard some reference to it and that it might have something to do with uh, 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 Chinese uh, cotton and the Uyghurs and, and so forth and more stupid U.S. sanctions, yes. Yes, and, and it's real. So I'll put it like this. That sounds like something you would hear when people, when McCarthyites were talking about the red era of the Stalinist Soviet Union, right? that at the state store that they couldn't buy tampons. But here at the CVS and Walgreens, there aren't tampons. The, the shelves are bereft of them. So that's an update. Pity us in the U.S. But practically speaking, Mark, people day to day in Russia, in Moscow, going to the store, no. you're not... You've not been affected really no, by no. I mean, I did right? not buy a lot of Western products to begin with, right? So uh, I, 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 a very, very small amount. Russia is probably the most autarkic country in the world, meaning economically self-sufficient in terms of agriculture and products and everything else. The only thing is is consumer electronics. I haven't bought any big budget consumer electronics, but actually the Korean stuff, Samsung. That that most Russians prefer, you know, and buy middle class Russians anyway. It's still all available. So, um, no, um, you know, the I, I live a, a middle class lifestyle as a, as an academic uh, in Russia uh, with with uh, a wife who works uh, for uh, a Russian company, um, and what what the, the adjustment that we've had to make is we cut a few Western big expensive items like expensive coffee syrups out of our thing and substituted Russian ones instead. And we eat out instead of every two weeks, we get takeout maybe once a month now. That is the sole amount of what we've had to do as a result of you know a worsening economic situation. And I think a lot of Americans are in a much worse, middle-class Americans are in a much worse place, and unless I'm terribly wrong. And can you get crow food? Yeah, Mark? I mean, my, my, my crows are probably the best fed crows in the world. They still get, um, you know, a little uh, cocktail shrimp and turkey heart and Swiss cheese uh, made in Russia um, and cherry tomatoes and grapes and fresh cherries and uh, whatnot. Best best fed, best boiled, disabled crows in the world, there, I guarantee. There we go with the crow yeah. update. Always a pleasure to talk to Mark Soboda straight out of Moscow. Mark, thanks a lot for being on the show and great report as usual. When we come back, we'll have more of the backstory.
empire of lies, an oasis of truth and free speech in the vast wasteland that is the tamponless Biden administration. I'm investigative journalist Lee Stranahan, and this is the backstory. Rod admitted, was that the best damn tampon and crow report you heard today on Sputnik? The best uh, tampon and crow report I've heard all year. Right, we're number one. The practicing American exceptionalism in Germany. What? But great report from Mark Sabota. Speaking of Germany, I'll talk about that in a second. Did you hear about the the journalist who's being prosecuted by Germans? Yeah, I did see that, Lee, and uh, that seems possibly trying to, well, they're trying to do that here as well, so uh, it seems like it's a common theme. Yes, and it's very frightening. But great report with Mark Sabota. We learned a lot, didn't we, Rod? Forget the tampons. That's just childish. But you agree, every time Mark Sabota comes on, we learn a lot about a lot. Don't you agree? Oh, yeah, for sure. Mark, Mark lays it all out, and uh, he puts it in a way that was understandable for the, you know, the common person to, to understand what's going on over in Ukraine and what Russia's plans are to keep in Ukraine. And coming up this hour, we have half-French Ted Rawl, our friend, cartoonist, author, and bon vivant, Ted Rawl, joining us this hour on The Backstory. You know, and it's not criticism because he's he's not on, but Mark Sabota, I would say, is somewhat humble about Russia and their successes. Do you know what I mean, Rod? Do you get that impression? He somewhat downplays. Yeah he's, yeah, he's not bragging about it. I mean, because obviously there's losses of life. And like you said, there's families who are affected by this. But, you know, it has to be done. The, the Russian people... Like he said, this is what they want. They, they're, they're tired of what's going on over in Ukraine. But even the military aspect of things, I'm going to say it. Russia is kicking butt in Ukraine. Russia is decisively winning. And I'm going to say that straight out adamantly. Do you agree, Rod, from everything you've seen? Can Russia be said to kicking butt, to be kicking butt? Yeah, like I said from the very beginning, Lee, they've been very precise. They haven't been trying to uh, go all out. Um, we had Dmitry Babich on a couple of week, weeks ago. They're only using, in his words, they're only using one one-tenth of their uh, military might. Um, they're not like America where we go into a country like Afghanistan, Iraq, and we just flatten the place. We're shooting people. We're committing atrocities. You know, the, the fake news has to make up uh, crazy atrocities of, of rapes and all this other stuff. And, and by the way, we should try to get Dimitri on again. Great guest. We love having him on. But I'm going to say something about this. This idea of the hybrid war or an information war. You hear a lot of people talk about that. And they'll say even Mark said it in his appearance. And I, I know what he means. See, he doesn't want to say too much to make America look bad. In a weird way. Does it, but how do you think the information is going, Rod? Uh, I would say if we had to give it a, a grade, I'd give it an F minus, minus, minus. 
it's just horrible. They can't they can't keep up the lies. I mean, once like you you know, like the story says, when you keep up a lie, you have to keep it going, and they can't keep up with their with their own lies. And they get an A for consistency. They consistently lie. But have you seen the latest polling numbers for if people think the country is going in the right direction or wrong direction? Have you seen those numbers? Yeah, I did see that alert this morning, Lee, and uh, we talked about it maybe, I guess, uh, about a month ago, maybe a little less than a month ago. And the numbers keep going up of people who are disapproved of the way America's going. And 80 percent. Is that what you heard? 80 percent other people think the country's going in the wrong direction. Yeah, I, well, it was the alert I saw was split between uh, Democrats and Republicans. So even Democrats overwhelmingly were upset with the, the way the country's going. And I would say that's how you can tell how the information war is going. They Yes, they consistently lie, but you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time, as the great philosopher Bob Marley said. And that is what's going on. 67% are Democrats. Is that the number you said? Yeah, that's what I saw, about 67% of them. Yeah, so about 70%, let's round it up. 70%, 7 in 10 Democrats, the prime market for this. I'll bet they hate Trump, right? And I'll bet they fall for all the Cassidy BS. And I bet they fall for all the lies, right? I'm not saying 70% of Democrats are smart. Far be it for me. Right, Rod? You, you hear that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying... They're falling for the lies, and they admit the country is going badly. And I think that I want to know who the, you know, if it's 80% of people think the country is going badly. So what percentage of Republicans? 0.5? I'll bet it's about that. Republicans are more realistic about what goes wrong during a Democrat administration. Because they don't feel they have to carry water with the party. They can just say things aren't going well. People know things aren't going well. Right, Rod? Yeah, Lee, you know, I go up and down 95 um, sometimes, you know, going back to Philly and back to VA. And I know I've been hearing a lot of people just overhearing conversation. And they were like, you know, whatever they're talking about, whether it be gas violence, uh, the media, like, you know, when Trump was in office, this was, uh, it wasn't like this. And I'm just over here in conversation. It's not even in- including me. So these conversations are happening all over the country. And you know, it's interesting because it's a Wednesday. And of course, that's the day after Tuesday. And it seems like every week now there's more elections. Have you noticed that, Rod? Every, every Wednesday, we have some election updates from the Tuesday elections in different states. For primaries. Is that something you've noticed? Yeah, I have noticed, and the media doesn't want to really cover that these uh, Republicans, especially Trump-backed Republicans, are, are winning. You know, not saying that that's a good thing, because, you know, a lot of these are rhinos. Trump really doesn't even know who he's endorsing, but, you know, they are racking up wins. And, of course, the elected representative from Colorado, who the media hates, Lauren Bollard, she puts off a young, hot Sarah Palin vibe. Is that fair to say, Rod? She kind of looks like her a little bit, maybe, you know, with darker hair. Um, she kind of looks like her. So, yeah, I, I would say so. 
it, she looks like Sarah Palin's younger. Uh, Sarah Palin's a good-looking woman, but she's the younger, slightly more good-looking cousin from Colorado. If someone told you that was Sarah Palin's cousin, who got the genes from her mother's side or whatever, you'd believe it, right, Rod? Yeah, I would believe it without uh, verification. Yeah, I believe it. And uh, now, now, since I'm being shallow, assist me going here. Who do you think is cuter? And I'm, by the way, I have a no, I've hands down, I'm forgetting ideology completely. Who's cuter? Laura Bullard or AOC? In your opinion? I'm going to go with Lauren Barber. Uh, I think uh, AOC looks like a, like a hamster. I wouldn't, I, wouldn't talk, I wouldn't ask for her number. There you go. So AOC, you don't get Rod's number. Sorry. But no, I think Lauren Bullard is, is cuter. And it's completely shallow and meaningless. But when it comes to ideology, Laura Bullard, Lauren Bullard, you know the media hates her guts. They absolutely hate her. And in Colorado, the Democrats were trying to get Democrats to switch party for the primary just so they could vote against Lauren Bollert in the primary. Did you see that? Uh, no, Lee, I was paying attention to uh, the South Carolina rep that Project Veritas went on the cover. Did you see that one? That's the one no. I was paying attention to. No, what did you yeah, see? It's, just a, it's this black woman. She's a state rep. And she's on the phone with a uh, somebody in prison, actually. So that's oh, I did see that. Thing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And then she's trying to get she's trying to get undercover Democrats to pose as Republican Republicans, so that they'll infiltrate the party and take it down from the inside. She's talking about getting drug money to help her fund her campaign and all this other stuff. So that, that's what I was looking into. And I like she she also referred to herself as the N word. You heard that. I was going to pull that clip, but I realized we would have had to do too much work to censor it. You saw she referred to herself several times as the N-word, right? Yeah, she knows she, um, you know, I mean, some people talk like this. She says she she likes dealing more with black people, but so that, you know, Project Veritas had their black correspondent speak to her, but she didn't really like him. So she only likes black people who she agrees with. Right. She says she can talk to all kinds of people and that was kind of amazing the good work again by project veritas maybe we should try if you're willing to do the work try to grab that maybe rod because we gotta play it now that you brought it up we'll, we'll try to get it for a show tomorrow but um, but in colorado lauren bowler won her primary bid which means she'll probably win because she's in a, a district where the Republican wins. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And like we said with with uh, Tyler Nixon, you know, uh, besides Denver, uh, you know, it's it's pretty much a red state. Yes, but one interesting thing I've noticed that's a new dynamic is there was re- one Republican rep who won who's pro-choice at least up until the first 16 weeks. So you see what I'm saying? So you're getting politicians now in the post Roe v. Wade era. 
we're having to stake out positions on abortion, which are somewhat nuanced. Does that make sense? That to say, I oppose abortion after 15 weeks or 24 weeks or whatever. I think that's an interesting new thing. And what you're seeing is not all Republicans take a strictly pro-life position. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, and I don't I don't know why most people or anybody would think that uh, all Republicans are in a monolith and they think alike and, you know, just like uh, Democrats. But, you know, obviously in the past, I'd say, eight to ten years, if you if, you know, if you're guilty of wrong thing in the Democratic Party, they'll they'll take you out. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you saw, uh, I guess it was last week, Andrew Gilliam has been charged federally with, you know, bribery and all these other charges. And, you know, that's a guy, you know. This is a guy who didn't win his governor race. And when you don't win and, you know, you step out of line, they come and take you down. So we see he's he's getting taken down now. And what I think is going to happen post Roe, which we are, it's a post Roe v. Wade era. What I think, and this is a guess, that most Republicans, you're going to start seeing Republicans put legislation forward wanting there be protection for abortions in the case of rape and incest. Do you think you'll see Republicans put forward that legislation, Rod, where they, where they want to be safe in terms of rape and incest? I think a number, number of Republicans are going to take that position. Does that make sense? I think that would be sensible. Um, I think Florida, uh, I think you, you, you uh, referenced it before. I think Florida, you have to give your reason for uh, your abortion. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think so. It's still in the courts. They're still working out how the post-Roe era is going to work out. But I'm saying that I think things like protections, if you want to call them that, in the case of rape and sex, Says, are going to come up more. You're going to see more Republicans take a position because it takes most Republicans I know, even the strictly pro-life ones, they're not hugely comfortable with the rape and incest issue. Does that make sense, Rod? They, they, they're, they're open on that one. They'll make an argument for it. Yeah. So I think the the result of Roe v. Wade being overturned is going to be a more nuanced position on abortion. And I seriously do. That's why I'm predicting we'll see going ahead in the future. Because if you're trying to get elected on a state level, it's easier to, to take a position that's pro-life and anti-rape and incest. Does that make sense? You're not going to offend as many pro-choice people that they'll never vote for you and they'll make you out to be a monster. Does that make sense, Ron? Yeah, no, that, that does make sense, Lee. And it's, um, it's a more sensible uh, position to take instead of the, uh, the position we see nowadays with, uh, a lot of politicians like uh, Murphy, the governor of New Jersey, where, you know, up to birth abortions, that's what he's for. And he won't answer anything else but up to birth abortions. Right. And so so it's interesting watching politics in the 
post-pro era, even before it's shaken out. Because in states like Louisiana and Florida, is still the court struck down restrictions on abortion, and it's still not been worked out fully yet. It's in the courts for at least a few weeks. Now, did you see that there was some information that came out, and I don't understand it completely, about the 53 people who died in the hot truck in San Antonio. Did you see that, Rod? Well, I did see that they charged two men for this. That's what I did see. And uh, like you said, uh, the number is growing. It was 50 yesterday, now it's 53. And I saw how one of the men was driving a truck. And I don't know exactly what this means. Assume the identity of one of the victims. And I don't actually understand, and I listened to the story twice, and I still don't understand it. Is that before or after? If he was using his ID of one of the guys in the back of the truck, when he was driving the truck across, before the guy had died, that's one thing. But at least they're starting to cover it. But 53 deaths is huge. And I'm going to say what I said. I think I said it yesterday. Joe Biden and the Democrats have blood on their hands. Anyone who's been encouraging people to violate this country's immigration laws, and if you can get away with it, we'll let you get away with it. I think they have blood on their hands. Is that unfair? Is that inhumane of me, Rod? No. Uh, I agree with you. I take it even more. I think these people should be charged. You know, obviously it won't happen, but these people should be charged. Look, Kamala Harris telling people to come, you know, that, they, they'll, that they'll accept uh, that these children and whatnot. I think all these politicians should be criminally charged for telling people to come to America illegally. And I'm going to say something. I'm going to go full Wall Smith here. Joe Biden made a statement yesterday about Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas and said he was grandstanding because Abbott brought up the deaths. And the answer is, keep these migrants' name out of your mouth, Joe Biden. How dare you talk about grandstanding after what you pulled in Uvalde? And the more we've learned about Uvalde, the more outrageous it is that the police didn't even try to go in. Is that fair to say, Rod? That's not even a gun issue. What the hell was going on where the police didn't try to go in and then have covered it up? That's a a serious issue with me. But every Democrat was grandstanding. There's some serious police training problems there, right? Who knows how many people would have died if the cops had just done their job. But for Joe Biden to talk about a politician grandstanding for bringing up the issue, Joe Biden, don't talk about grandstanding. Is that fair? That's very fairly. Um, You know, you talk about the Valde situation and at every level, the media, the police, these people all fail these children and they're failing us as citizens and telling us the information they're trying to move the news cycle past it. Cause like you said, the school will be demolished and I'm guessing uh, by the end of the summer, it'll probably be demolished. Yes. And there goes the scene of the crime. Like Jason Goodman said. 
So, but there's so much there that the media is reporting one day, but then gone the next, right? They report a little bit, but they're not outraged by it. I think anyone who's a parent, when you hear what the police did or didn't do in Uvalde, it's not a matter of the gun he had. He could have had a a slow-loading gun. And when the police don't go in to stop the guy, what's going on? There's a lot of serious problems there. And they're not being addressed seriously by the media or politicians. And the issues that have been brought up, I want to know how the people in the truck, I want to know what made them decide to go over the border. Were they part of a caravan, for instance? I don't think so. But were they? Have you heard anything about that, Rod? Well, the the title I saw was that these uh, migrants were seeking a better life. That's what I saw in the title of uh, one of the articles I saw. And well, you know, I'm seeking a better life, Lee, and you, I know you're seeking a better life here in America. So why are we telling people from other countries that come here and seek a better life when we're all trying to get uh, America right on the right track? You know what I mean? Yes, and they were seeking a better life. And it didn't work out for them because of the immigration laws that we have. If they're encouraging people to come, knowing, I've talked about this before with people for the Center for Immigration Studies. I know that it gets very hot in the summer in South Texas and Mexico and even across the desert. A lot of people die, nine huge groups, but every year you hear about people dying in the desert between Mexico and Arizona or Texas. And we've talked about that on the show. Encouraging anybody to go, well, if you make it, what these people essentially believe was if they'd made it out of the truck in San Antonio, it would have been home free, right? And that encouraged them to go. Right, exactly, Lee. But, uh, you know, being stuck in a truck and not knowing when you're going to get out, you got to pee. And I'm pretty sure there's probably young people on, you know, all types of stuff going on in that on that truck. Um, it's just a sad situation. No, it's a horrible situation. And I'd like to see somebody who calls himself a journalist actually do the work you should be doing and ask. You, you can... Show compassion for the people. I have nothing but compassion for the people. But I want to know how they ended up there. What led them to dying a horrible death in the back of a truck? Why did they decide to do that? Right? Yeah. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, go ahead. And so, let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll be joined by our friend, Ted Rawl, here on The Backstory.
We're Jeff, back in the back story, 105.5 FM, AM 1390. And we are joined by a great friend of the show, author, cartoonist, and bon vivant, Ted Rawl. Hey, Ted, how you doing? Hey, that's me. Sorry, Lee. How are you? Okay, good, good. I'm, I'm fine. And how are you? I'm good. Okay, so, Ted, oh, we got a lot of stuff to talk about. Let's start by talking about French politics, since, as we've learned and discussed many times, you are a dual French and U.S. citizen. I right? am. That's true. Now, recently, first off, did you see the footage? It's not recent. It's about a week or so old. Did you see the footage of Emmanuel Macron getting attacked by a woman? Did you, did you see that? No, I missed that. Basically, he was doing like a meet and greet, and he was just up shaking hands with people, and this woman attacked him, and just basically took a swing at him. So, what is the state of Emmanuel Macron's, without having seen that, uh, popularity in France? How, How much political power, I know he runs things, but still... With the recent parliamentary elections, what is the state of his power in France? Well, extremely muddled because basically he came along and broke the uh, decades-old political party system that had been working for as long as most people who are listening can remember, uh, where you had sort of a center-left government that veered back and forth between sort of a post-Gaullist and a socialist party. That whole system kind of collapsed. Uh, Manuel Macron did a general take, sort of launched a hostile takeover of the American, of the entire, sorry, the entire French parliamentary system. Uh, His party swept the parliament. Uh, It was a party that was dead, really didn't have much ideology other than to support him. And then he got in, uh, he had full control of the situation, but the problem is the situation spun out of control. Uh, and basically, the it turns out that uh, the French electorate found out that he was more conservative than they would have liked. He's not certainly not a right-wing conservative, but more of a center-right, hardcore corporatist. And then uh, there were all these protests, the Yellow Vest protests, uh, and the working class is sort of up in arms. And anyway, the point is that in the general election, it was him versus uh, Marie, Marine uh, Le Pen. And in sort of a replay of something that happened a while back, uh, a lot of the left came together to vote against her and for, but they really were much, they were, that didn't really mean they were for him. They just didn't want her to get in uh, with her extremist views uh, and her sort of post-fascist agenda. So um, in the parliament in the parliamentary elections, which just concluded, uh, his party uh, is having trouble. Really, had trouble forming a you know a coalition that could govern. And so French so French politics are just sort of a a, a famushed mess is the best way to describe it. Um, it's sort of nobody kind of knows where things go from here. But uh, whatever this is. Is going to be the is going to be you know the foreseeable future. We just don't really know how to define it. Um, you know, Macron is either going to be wildly 
presiding over a very wildly dysfunctional government, or he's going to pivot and figure out something new. But it's, you know, basically we're feeling our way through the dark at this point. You know, I'm glad you brought up uh, old French politics, because I recently heard someone say that, in a sense, they think actually Le Pen and who's again, Marchand? What, what pronounce his name? The leftist? Oh, oh, uh, you mean uh, Mélenchon. Mélenchon, yes. Jean-Luc Mélenchon. I, I know actually pronouncing it. Yeah, it requires far too much actual French that I'm capable of speaking. But I, I heard that actually someone said that when they look at it, the Le Pen and Mélenchon are actually a throwback to the way the French left and right used to be. They consider them out of that tradition. Do you think there's some truth to that, Ted Roth? There's a lot of truth to that. And frankly, I think that's where most French people, regardless of whether they're young or old, are are comfortable. They they want that. I mean, it was kind of just like a you know, kind of like a, a moment about of madness when they elected Emmanuel Macron. Because it's not really the French way to go for a sort of a, charism- a charismatic empty suit like they do that way. They, you know, the French way in the post-war era has been technocrats and also ideologues. And uh, the technocrats are in the middle. The ideologues are on the extremes and on the fringes. That's been the French way. I think that's still where, you know, French politics belongs and and will continue to be. Macron's an anomaly. Now, I ask this because, at least with the yellow vest, there is some tradition in recent times of street protests. But do you think eventually, because I'm seeing all over Europe and the UK, leaders are very unpopular. Even the new leader of Germany, Schultz, is unpopular. And Boris Johnson is unpopular, as we've talked to people from the UK about many times. But they don't seem to be up in arms about it. Or Do you anticipate, if things get worse economically, you'll see the French take this street? 100%. I mean, it doesn't take much to get the French out into the streets. It's kind of their thing. Uh, you know, if you ever take a trip there, always allow extra time for strikes. You know, if the, there's always, if the mail's not on strike, the trains are on strike, there's sympathy strikes. I mean, there, yeah, for sure. There will be street activism is a, you know, in the near future is a virtual certainty. Now, I, I've seen, and I'm sure you have, there's lots of recent immigration to France. And a lot of it coming from the Middle East. Do you think the recent immigrants will take part in in that kind of street demonstration? That's a good question. Um, I don't think so, because um, undocumented workers in France have a very precarious position um, and would, you know, would they're not going to risk coming into contact with the police. It's really that simple. Um, it would, it, they'll, you know, they risk being uh, arrested and deported, and uh, that would be, and uh, it would be very bad for them. So, I think probably not. We had the G7 summit 
in the Alps above Bavaria and recently. And Manuel Macron was caught on a microphone there talking to Biden, catching him at a, a moment to tell him about the reality that Saudi Arabia and UAE will not, they can't produce any more oil. Macron actually seems like one of the most realistic of the G7 leaders about what's going on with Ukraine. Do you sense, I'm not saying he's fully realistic, but he seems like one of the more realistic. Whereas Bojo, for instance, just is whatever he says. And Biden the same way. They're fully out of reality pro-Ukrainian. What do you see, Ted, as Macron's position on what's going on with Ukraine? Yeah, I agree with your take. I think I think Macron, even in public, has been pretty clear that he wants this, uh, that he thinks that the, the, the West, uh, led by the United States, has overreacted, that the sanctions go too far, that the sanctions are self-destructive, um, that Zelensky, you know, Zelensky doesn't really deserve the full-throated support of the West. And I, I think I think Macron's view is it's not pro-Russia and it's not even pro-Ukraine. I think his view is more like this is really not France or Europe's business or concern. Uh, he probably he would never say that, but uh, in public. But I think that's where he that's where he lands. And it's the practical effect of the things that he's saying. Yeah, no, no, I agree. And he's an interesting person to watch for that reason, because I think in some senses, if he could get a negotiated settlement, I think he thinks Ukraine should negotiate with Russia for Ukraine's sake. Right. Do you get that impression generally? Yeah, I think he's a, you know, he's a subscriber to uh, RealPolitik. And he thinks, uh, you know, this is, this is, we look, let's face it, Lee, we all know that that's, that's where this is going to end up, right? So po- all the posturing aside, we all know that, you know, uh, Russia, Russia's going to get what it came for and keep it. And, um, and we know that Ukraine is going to have to accept it. And they can either, you know, they can keep fighting and, and this can go on, but it could also end just as easily. And the results will be the same, except, of course, the difference is the number of people who have to die, the number of buildings that have to be destroyed. So everybody who who's watch, looking at this coldly and, disp- and dispassionately can see what the end looks like, which looks not very different from the current state of affairs. So, you know, um, I think Macron is a smart guy and he sees what it is and he's got, and he's impatient and he would like to just sort of settle this and, and move on to other more pressing issues. Now, Ted, let's move on to American politics. Before the break, Rod and I were talking about the current poll numbers that we saw this morning. And those numbers show 67% of Democrats aren't happy with the direction of the company the country's going. And so do you see anything on the horizon that indicates anyone from the Democratic Party is going to acknowledge that reality that nearly 70% of Democrats aren't happy and trying to address what 
the country is not happy about. Well, I could easily imagine, Lee, some kind of spin coming out of the DNC saying that, like, well, the reason people are unhappy is because of, uh, in, you know, Republicans, stuff that Republicans have done wrong. And maybe Democrats are think the country's going in the wrong direction because of the Supreme Court rulings on gun control, abortion and other issues. They can spin it that way. And they're, they're going to be very reluctant to um, spin it in a sort of Jimmy Carter uh, kind of, uh, you know, angsty way, you know, the, the, uh, the, what was, what was the, um, not ennui, <laughs> not angst, uh, but Jimmy Carter's um, speech saying that, you know, he, he was acknowledging that the United States was going in the wrong direction. Um, and uh, oh, the sweater one? Well, not that one. Uh, it's the one where he, he's just, God, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's really driving me crazy. It'll come back to me. Uh, but the point is, it's, it, it all, okay. you always look you always look bad as a, as an incumbent politician when you sort of acknowledge that things aren't going so well under unless you know under your rule if you can't you know and if you accept the blame yourself that's viewed as weakness so unless you're like JFK with the bay of pigs uh, you know if you have that kind of charm and you're able to do it that way and let's face it Joe Biden doesn't have that kind of charm uh, the, the Democrats are, I think, in a pickle. They're not going to admit uh, that there's so much misery. They're going to just sort of go do what they always do, which is la, 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 la. You know, I can't hear you. I assume everything is fine. Um, but, you know, it's it's not a it's just not going to work. I mean, they don't have any rabbits to pull out of any hats at this point. I just don't see how they go into the midterms and come out with anything less than, you know, bloodshed. I, I just don't. Now, so let me amend your quote somewhat. They say, la, 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 I can't hear you, and Donald Trump. That seems, Trump seems to be the Democrats' secret weapon. Hatred of Trump is still, in, in other words, I agree, a lot of Americans may may see all kinds of problems, but if they're Democrats, they still hate Trump adamantly. Yeah, that's so true, and that's a, in the the midterm. Go ahead. Yeah, go. No, ahead. I think I think that's right. And but look, not being Donald Trump, even with the testimony that came out in the yesterday's January sixth hearing is not ever going to be enough. I mean, you're the ones, you know, you're in, you ran for office. You're the president. You control the House and the Senate for the time being. And you're responsible. As, as Harry Truman's sign said, the buck stops here. It, it's your job. You ran for it. You wanted, you wanted it. You have extraordinary power. You're going to have to use it. And you're going to have to communicate intelligently and effectively. And by the way, the name, the word came back to me. It's Jimmy Carter's was the the Malays speech, even though he never said the yes, word right, Malays. Right, right. He uh, did not, but you know people called it that. Did you do the phone a friend or what happened? Pardon. You got the right answer. So you go into the next round, Ted. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but and so I would. Now, this is tough to gauge, but 
Do you think the January 6th hearing is making more people hate Trump, like Trump, or it's a wash? I think it's a wash. Um, I think nobody's mind is going to be changed about Donald Trump. Nobody's nobody who certainly no one uh, you know no one no one's mind will be affirmatively improved. Uh, you know he's not going to pick up anyone anyone as a result of this. Uh, but he certainly I don't think he's going to lose anyone either because the people who like him already know everything that he's all about, and there's no surprises here. It's not like, well, I was okay with all the all the insane tweets. I was okay with all the violent racist rallies. I was okay with, um, you know, everything that I didn't like about him uh, and his coddling of white nationalists. Oh, but wait, he threw food at the wall and he wanted to run and he wanted to uh, go to the Capitol on January 6th. Oh, that makes him a bad person. Um, you know, I just don't see it. It's like, no, I don't think anyone's mind is being changed by this. I think, um, you know, it's not, I mean, it's interesting. It's not like Nixon during Watergate, where Nixon saw his support erode by the week. Um, and he went from being incredibly popular to being incredibly unpopular in a matter of a year. That's just, that's not what's happening here. I mean, you know, Donald Trump came with his 45% and he still has his 45% and he has them in the back. And I would say, too, I think it was Rod earlier said, he's hearing some people say, which you do hear some people say, well, at least gas was not $5 a gallon under Trump. And the the things that are easy, easily quantifiable, gas prices, for instance, they can say that was better under Trump. Are you hearing that slightly from people? I haven't heard that. Um, no, I haven't heard that. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying it's not something that's on people's minds. I mean, look, the fact is, though, uh, Joe Biden is the president. The prices are soaring. And this is really attributable to him because of the sanctions. I mean, look, gas prices had started to rise anyway, but they didn't. They soared after the, uh, you know, the sanctions against Russia. That's an unforced error. He didn't have to do that. Everybody knows that was his decision. And, uh, you know, and, and he's pretty much tacitly conceded as much. So it's a problem. Uh, he's, you know, he, he, he owns that in a way that, like most presidents who've had to contend with the people anger over high gas prices, which is sort of a third rail in American politics, um, have, they, they've never had to contend with the blame quite to this extent, nor has anyone seen a price increase to this extent. Now, you, in talking about Macron, you used the phrase technocrat. And I remember in college 40 years ago, I got into a fight with someone about technocrats, and I didn't quite understand what they meant. So, like, I'm going to allow you to define what you view as a technocrat and their impact on politics, Ted? So uh, my understanding, and uh, I could be mistaken about this because I'm not a political scientist, is that a technocrat is, is a form, is a leader who's, uh, less ideal, whose real appeal is less based on ideology 
you know, an appeal on ideology is like, for example, I, Ted Rall, if elected president, will bring about, um, you know, socialized medicine and I will pull our troops out of, uh, you know, foreign countries. This is part of my left-wing ideology. Uh, that's, but a technocrat is all about running things in a smooth and efficient manner, uh, more the way that a business is run, maybe. So a technocrat is someone like maybe Al Gore would qualify as a technocrat, like not a very ideological uh, Democrat at all, but someone, you know, he was put in charge of the government efficiency uh, uh, group that under the Bill Clinton administration and, uh, or like someone like Michael Bloomberg, the former New York city mayor, um, he ruled for three, for three, uh, for three terms in New York city. And he was, um, he was definitely a technocrat, you know, his ideology was kind of unimportant, uh, for he, but he established, uh, a more smooth running, uh, city bureaucracy. He created a three one one hotline that helps New Yorkers navigate their government more efficiently. So uh, the, the appeal of a technocrat is sort of calm uh, efficiency and and bureaucratic order. The appeal of an ideologue is not about that. And how do you see the Biden administration in terms of that split? Well, certainly the Biden administration um, has no distinct ideology, um, certainly not at this point. You know, it came in with a little bit of like New Deal light vibe, but that evaporated after six months. At this point, uh, the administration seems close to being impotent. So um, without it, it's sort of devoid of ideology and it's certainly not efficient. I mean, they, there's never been a technocratic appeal to Joe Biden. Um, you know, he doesn't have the vibe for it. He's not, um, you know, you need to be sort of put together in a certain kind of uh, way. You can't be, frankly, as old and doddering as Joe Biden is and be a technocrat. You have to be able to say, look, uh, you know, I might be boring, but things, but I run a tight ship. Joe Biden's not running a tight ship. So he's, you know, he's certainly not an ideologue. I mean, I'd say he's a, uh, He's sort of like um, a, a, a doddering old fool at this point. And um, I, I think it's kind of a, you know, it's an administration that's in, it's, it's an embarrassment. It's kind of a, it's collapsing. Um, you know, we, it's like Woodrow Wilson after the stroke, but we don't have Mrs. Wilson to run the country. Yeah. So let's look at the fresh young face. Use your prognosticating village, Ted. What do you think? The political future holds for Kamala Harris. Well, she desperately wants to be the Democratic candidate for president in 2024. I think that if she somehow secures that uh, with the DNC having their thumbs on the scale as usual, she will certainly lose to uh, either Trump or DeSantis, whoever the Republicans run. I don't think she'll be the nominee. I think that the, she doesn't have much of a future. If I were her, I would try to be angling for a soft landing, like perhaps a Supreme Court pick or job or federal judge, or maybe she could go back to the Senate or governor or something, because I don't think she's going to be president. Um, she just, she has all of the charisma of a lump of coal. And uh, she is 
you know, she's wildly unpopular. Uh, she is this is not all entirely her fault. The president is not giving her any opportunity to shine, has not put her in charge of anything that she, where she can succeed or that matches her skill set. And she hasn't been able to seize opportunities to make herself likable and uh, interesting to the American public. The, the voters just don't like her. And I mean, the Democratic voters don't like her. Nobody likes her. So, I mean, uh, she has a certain... Every time she talks, uh, you know, she's so incredibly annoying. I, I just don't see that changing anytime soon. No, so I'll ask you another question in a second, Rita Canelares. Let me point out that she was also hugely unpopular with Democratic voters during the primary. She was losing massively in the primary. She couldn't get any traction whatsoever. So she is not someone who ever had a base of popularity, as I can say, nationally with Democrats. Would you agree with yeah, that? Yeah, I don't even know. It's kind of a mystery to me how she even made it uh, to senator from California. But um, that's you know something I'd have to, to ask some people, some Californians about. But no, nationally, there's no base of support. She was at one and a half percent in the Democratic primaries. So let me ask you, as a cartoonist, when you approach someone like Kamala Harris, what do you see and what do you choose to focus on? Because, you know, in cartooning, I assume your, your job is to find one or two characteristics and to overstate them, caricature them. That's right. True. What do you caricature with Kamala Harris? Well, it's, what you're looking for is sort of, you know, if you were to say, uh, okay, so Kamala Harris is in, a, is in a room in this party. Look for the woman who looks like blah. I would say look for the woman with twinkly eyes who always looks like she's laughing and who has very, very flat hair. <laughs> and I think you'd find her. Um, she's an attractive woman, and, and that sucks for a cartoonist because uh, any kind of attractive face or is – like Jerry Ford was a classic problem. He was a good-looking guy. Uh, he was really hard for the cartoonists of that time to to draw. Um, and, uh, you know, John Kerry, also a great-looking guy. Also, he was a bit of a problem. Fortunately, he had this magnificent mane of hair that uh, made it. And also, he had those uh, Basset Hound eyes. Uh, with Kamala Harris, uh, you definitely look at the twinkling eyes and, uh, and the flat hair. Um, and she always, very helpfully, always dresses exactly the same. There's always the power suit, uh, the, the thin blouse underneath, and possibly the Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, old, uh, you know, late 1990s uh, clutch of pearls. Uh, you'll, you'll get that. So there's, that's a, uh, that's what I look for. I've seen her with one other outfit, to be fair, Ted, but it's historical. Did you ever see the footage of Kamala Harris on the red carpet with Montel? Montel Williams chooses his date. Did you see that footage? Is that the one where she was in the suffragette white, or am I thinking of something else? She looked like a chick who'd be on the red carpet with Montel. That's what she looked like. But it was not power suit. It's great footage. Rod, you've seen that footage, right? Camel and Montel. We may have lost Rod. 
You may be looking at them now. But if, if people have not seen that, look that up on YouTube. Simply type in Kamala Harris Montel, and you'll be able to find it easily. But uh, so, Ted, if not Kamala for 20 Oh, my God. I'm looking at it now. You have Holy any cow. <laughs> okay. You see what, what I'm saying? I'm, was I being insulting or descriptive? She looks like a chick who'd be on the red carpet with Montel, uh, right? Uh, yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, she's, she's, she looks like she's wearing it's a, kind of a, a, it looks like a satin sort of like on the top. It's looks like it's negligee ish would be the best way to describe it. Yes. That's fair to say. And it's not power suit. Right? No, I mean, I, I would say you it's one like of those interesting things. That's like, she looks very attractive. But you can't say that she looks great because she shouldn't really be out like that in public given her position in society, but, you know, in politics. I've heard you described as hoeware. <laughs> Would that be unfair? Um, I think it's extremely sexist. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, look, she's, you know, whatever. She's a, she's a modern woman. She can dress however she wants. But it's very out there, for sure. Yes, surprising. Now, do you have any out-of-the-box predictions at who would be a better candidate in 2024 and remaining seconds, Ted Rawl? Between whom and whom? Between anyone. Name a Democrat oh, who, would, who, who would be a better oh, candidate. Than, than Kamala? Oh, uh, man. Um, okay, well, one who might win, I keep coming back to, is Cory Booker. Uh, Al Franken. Bring back Al Franken. I think he wins. Okay, that's a bold prediction. Ted Rowe, we're out of time. But hearing you react to Kamala Harris with Montel was worth the entire show. Great appearance, Ted Rall, R-A-L-L.com. And thanks to Mark Sabota. Great appearance. We'll see you tomorrow. I'm Lisa Ann. This has been The Backstory.